here. Glad that you have your Bible. Let's open it up to 1 Peter. We're going to be in 1 Peter for a while. And uh, I've entitled this lesson this week. It's in chapter 1, verses 4 through 12. It's about our salvation. That's a word that Christians use that the world probably doesn't understand. If you took a microphone and went to the mall and grabbed some lady off the off the track there and threw the microphone in her face and said, are you saved? Uh, tell me about your salvation. You're probably going to get a uh, 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 kind of response. But for a believer, that word is laden with meaning, laden with, with uh, spiritual importance. And I want us to not miss what Peter's trying to tell us in this portion of his letter. Um, I, I want to I start, though, by, by giving you a statistic that was very... Um, troublesome to me. It, it went uh, like this. 24% of the United States adults describe themselves as born again. Only 24%. And that's down 6% from, you know, four or five years before. My goodness, if only 24% describe themselves as born again, what does that say about the message of salvation in our culture? It is not readily given, perhaps. It's not readily received, perhaps. It's not talked about enough. Just think in your own life, when was the last time you talked about salvation with a friend? Over a cup of coffee. You know, did, did the, the reality of your own salvation come up in conversation? Was there a refer reference to any portion of the scripture, like the one we're going to get into uh, this morning? Good questions. Our salvation is an important topic. He starts in verse number uh, four, actually verse number three. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, as he has given us new birth into a living stone excuse me, into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. So we'll just stop right there, just a couple of verses. So he's got a formula here for praising the Lord. He starts off with, with using praise be to God, uh, to, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he tar starts off with the concept of the Lord indicating that there's a, a complete and full authority there. Then he, then he shifts to Jesus' human name. When you ask the kids, what's the name of the Lord? They will say his first name is Jesus and his last name is Christ. That's how they, you know, figure it. Jesus is his human name, and it means Savior, or the one who saves. Christ is a title. It's not an actual name. It just means Messiah, or the anointed one. Um, so when you, call some, when you call Jesus the Lord, he's full of a complete authority. He's Jesus. Jesus. He has a human sight to him, for sure. And he is the one who saves. And Christ, the one who has anointed the Messiah that we're waiting for. And then he launches in, Peter does, he launches in to this discussion of the new birth. Now, the best place to go for a discussion of the new birth is actually in the, in the book of John. So let's go to John. John chapter 3 <clears throat> holds the most famous verse that most people have in their minds about God. And it's the time when this man Nicodemus shows up at night to have a conversation with Jesus. He's sneaking around. He doesn't want anybody to see. In verse number two, he came to Jesus' night and said, Rabbi, teacher, 
I know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Unless he is born again. Now, before we go on to the fuller, a fuller explanation, the first time that term was used for me, I didn't have a clue what it meant. Born again. We born once. We, none of us are born twice. Um, you know, unless the birth was such that we went back into the birth canal and came back out again. I, I suppose that happens occasionally. But, but generally speaking, none of us have been born more than one time. Nicodemus reacts that same way. He, say, he says in verse 4, Well, how can a man be born when he is old? And Nicodemus uh, asks, surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Here comes Jesus' explanation. I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and of the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases, you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Well, how can this be? You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do, not, and do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know, and we testify of what we've seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you didn't believe. How then will you believe of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who has come from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe in him stands uh, condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So let me stop right there. This first discussion of being born again, Nicodemus shows up. He wants to quiz Jesus on the quiet so no one else knows about it. He is a, apparently a well-to-do guy. He shows up later uh, with Joseph of Arimathea to ask for the body of Jesus. So he has some standing in, in the community, but he's sneaking in at night trying to get a handle on what do we got to do to see heaven? What do we got to do to, to be right with God? You're, you're talking about the new covenant. I know the old covenant. I get that. I can understand that out of the Old Testament. What's the new covenant all about? And God uses terminologies about, terminology about you must be born again. Now, to be born the first time, think about that just for a second. There's a point at which you were not born, and then there was a point at which you were born. Again, you know, babies sliding in and out of whatever canal, notwithstanding, you're either born or you're not born. When he uses the New Testament term, you must be born again. It's the same, it's the same logic. You are either born spiritually or you're not. Again, if we stopped at our friends in the mall this morning with our, our uh, microphone, we're going to hear all kinds of answers about how someone goes to heaven. And almost all of them, 90 plus percent of them, are going to in some form or fashion talk about what they have done. I've done my best to follow the golden rule. Um, I do unto others as I would want them to do to me. I've done the very best I can. 
Um, I, I've been a, 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 you know, a Christian following Jesus um, all of my life and all kinds of other answers, all having to do with their productivity. Well, when we look at the, re, the, the, the theological discussion that Peter's bringing up, it has nothing to do with us. It has to do with the Spirit of God provi providing a rebirth, a, 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 a transition from death to life. That's why when we talk about, um, excuse me, to a person and say, uh, tell me about your salvation experience. And they say, well, I've always been a Christian. No. Sorry. No. There has to have been a time when you went from death to life. The Bible is very clear about that imagery. To, like the blind man in the Gospel of John. And the disciples all ask, hey, why, why is he blind? Why, who are going to blame this on? Who, who had the most sin, him or his parents? And he elbows him his way into the front part of the conversation and says, wait a minute, this is what I know. Whereas once I was blind, then I could see. There's, a, there's not a, you know, uh, a transition of 50 years going from my blindness to my being able to see. I was blind and then I could see. I was dead in my sins and my trespasses, according to Romans 3, and I have been born again into God's kingdom. That's a work of the Spirit. That's not a work of brownie points that I earned by my behavior. That's by me throwing myself at the feet of Jesus and saying, I believe. I want you as my Lord and Savior. The rebirth is a very important part. So for Peter to, to drag it out, he's, he's moving in, in an area that they're still a little confused about. Now, what, what do you get when you've been born again? I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And uh, this is another one of those, if you have not memorized it, you ought to verses. We're given something when we're born again. New stuff. What is the new stuff? A new heart, a new nature. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. I mean, there's a, there's a transition from this to that. We're done. We're over. Uh, it's, it's complete. And in another sense, another way of looking at it, in the book of Galatians, Paul talks about we've been adopted as sons. Now, one minute you're not a son, and the next minute when the gavel comes down in a courtroom and they declare, yes, you are an adopted child, it's done. You weren't, and now you are. What, what, uh, what needs to be understood and what Peter's driving at here is that believers also struggle. Believers also have have a, 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 you know transition on transition trials and temptations and persecutions he's making certain that you know that you are a believer that you have been born again before he starts his big discussion about all the suffering um, in in that passage we just read in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 5:17 the idea is is like a butterfly you know how it goes through its various stages but once a butterfly is a butterfly it never goes back to caterpillarville it never goes back it keeps going as a, as a butterfly if you've been born again you're not going to go back and try to get rid of the rebirth you're going to keep going 
You're, there's a there's a birth and it's it, and it and it's happened and the the glory of that process spiritually is now in process and we're going to we're going to see that Peter says even though you've been born again hey there are some there are some suffering that that might be around the corner he's reminding these these believers that that suffering is part of the bag it's part of the it's part of the process it's part of the activity of of loving and knowing Jesus now when we think about suffering if our, if our mind goes to, say, for example, the pastors in China that get arrested and thrown in a hole somewhere and spend the next 50 years uh, without food and water and all this thing, that's one kind of suffering. But there is another kind of suffering, the suffering of, of temptation or the suffering of a trial, a, a relationship that's difficult and you have to deal with it, um, the, the trial of something in your family, um, a health issue. Uh, Peter talks, or Paul talks about, I prayed to God to get this thing out of my life, this, this thorn in the flesh. A believer that might have a thorn in the flesh, yeah, it's part, of their, it's part of their package. So it's not just persecution that he's talking about, although to his immediate, uh, uh, the, the people that he's writing the immediate letter to, they were facing that kind of persecution. He's, he's lumping a lot of other kinds of things in there so that we can draw uh, encouragement from his words. He's reminding them that as being, as a believer, as being born again, there are two things, two incredible things that we have in Christ. And the first one is living hope. It's uh, right there in verse number three, of living hope. And then in verse number four, he talks about an inheritance. The living hope is the, is the, uh, is the gifts, the series of gifts that we are given now. Now, not, not once we're in heaven, but now. And then he shifts the attention to inheritance. Let me talk to you about the inheritance you're going to have later for then. So let's pick it apart. What do we get now? Well, first off, the word hope. In our society, hope means I'm wishing and hoping. You know, maybe it'll come. I hope. Manny, wouldn't it be great if? That is not the biblical understanding of hope. The biblical understanding of hope is that there is a promise, he has given it, and it's going to happen. Boom. In fact, the, 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 um, the essence behind the word hope in the New Testament is wait. Waiting on what we know is going to happen. Not maybe it will, but we're, we're confident because of our position in Christ. And so he says there's a confident optimism that's based on the promise and the person of God himself. The first one, living hope assures our immortality, that we're going to be around, that we're going to last forever. The old song says, is that all there is? No. Answer, no. This is not all there is. Probably you know a, a, a number of people that are suffering or in their family, tragedies and difficulties, and you know we're, we're talking about serious things right now. One of the encouragement to those people are, it's not always going to be like this. It will not stay like this forever. Thinking about you and your mom. It's not going to be like this forever. Um, thinking about folks that, that, that Candace deals with that have cancer. It's not going to be like that forever. Family stuff. A kid gone astray. It's not going to be like this forever. A health issue that's dragging us down. It's not going to be like this forever. We're going to trade these bodies in on a new one. I can't wait. I mean, yes, now. It's not going to be forever because we have a living hope in our rebirth. Our living hope also gives us an anchor for living. 
I had the opportunity to, uh, I think it was Saturday, a little more TV time than I normally have. And I kept hollering to Barb, she was in her room. And I kept hollering to Barb, this stuff stinks! junk I'm, I'm getting nothing out of this I mean I was you know making a commentary of what was on the television set she laughed and she said go go to your office and get your Bible out I mean yeah go get some you know get an anchor here that ain't gonna do it and she's absolutely right now I, I'm, all, I'm all for some diversions and some distractions and some whatever's in context of our you know, in proportion to our lives but the bottom line is the anchor we have comes from our relationship with Jesus not from anything else I don't care what your position is or where you live or what you have. Your anchor is not in any of that. It's not in that new house or that new car or that new relationship or that new what your kid did. I mean, we could all do the one up with the kid stuff. What's that? In the end, it's an anchor, the anchor we find in Jesus. And the last thing the living hope provides is it gives us a security, a, a security that's security in the resurrection of Christ. If he had not risen from the dead, then we have no assurance of rising from the dead ourselves. But because he did, and the word of God is clear about children of God mirroring that experience, you and I know that this is not all there is. We had a big family laugh about this whole thing of dying and being buried and cremated and whatever and whatever and whatever. And we were making all kinds of jokes about the whole thing. But the truth of the matter is, as a believer, I know that I, that, that which I know is me, my soul, my spirit, is not going to lay in the ground or be burned or whatever. It's going to be resurrected with Jesus Christ for all eternity. And I have that because I have been born again, not because I earned it or I deserve it, or there's a tally sheet that, you know, I might make it in. It's not like that. I uh, was, was dinking around in some stuff that had come up from, from my mom's life. And she had a, my mom converted to Catholicism when I was, I don't know, six or eight years old, maybe a little more. Anyway, her missile was on my desk this last weekend. And I flopped it open and I, I came, that would have been, the date for that probably would have been the uh, late 50s. Uh, so the Catholic Church, had, whatever evolution it was at, was a bit of a, when, would have been in the 50s. And so this missile, and I opened it up and um, there was a list of prayers. And at the end of each prayer, there was a documentation that, that said how many indulgences, how many days of indulgence you would get by ma making that prayer. Now, those of you that don't have a Catholic background don't understand, but at least at that time in the ch church, you could do things, specifically say prayers, and there was a, a price tag attached to it. And the price tag was so many days out of purgatory, called an indulgence. So if you pray, prayed that thing, and you, let's say you had a little tally sheet, and you had a little tally sheet, you could go, go minus 100, because I said that prayer, minus 100 days in, in purgatory. I've told you the story of when I was a child and I realized that system, and I didn't want to stay in purgatory forever, so I, I estimated about how many you know, days I was going to spend in purgatory based on what he got, gave me in confession every time. And I set out, I had this list of prayers. I would cherry pick the ones that had more days associated with them. And uh, I, you know, I'm knocking them off. There's another one, there's another one. I'm keeping a tally sheet, man. I want to get out of there as soon as possible, right? There's none of that in the rebirth. For nothing that I've ever done, I get a living hope. I'm living my life differently now under the uh, understanding that it's all about him and not about me. 
But there's more. And Peter says, hey, that's not, a, that's not the end. That's not the only thing. You're going to get an inheritance. Oh, okay, I'm inclined to hear about that. What kind of an inheritance? He said, it, it can never perish. It can never spoil. It can never fade. It's kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be re revealed in the last days. Now, let's just pause a second. He's, what he's saying here is there's some stuff coming. Not only do we have this anchor and, and all the understanding uh, of our life to come, he says, now let's talk about that life to come. Let's talk about your inheritance. Our inheritance cannot be destroyed. Pardon me. It cannot be, uh, it's undefiled. It can't be stained. It won't fade. Go to Matthew chapter 6. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 6, and let's talk about some treasures in heaven for a second. Our society, particularly South County, is very good at amassing things so as to uh, enhance our, our, um, our standing in society, you know. If we get too much stuff, we go rent a storage shed to put the stuff in the storage shed, right? You know, we just bigger barns, as the Bible would say. Is that not true? So we get a small house, and then, oh, that's not as much. And then we get a, you know, bigger house, and we got to get more furniture now, and get a bigger, bigger house, and now we got to have more furniture, and then we don't like that furniture, so that furniture goes in storage. Same way with anything else. It doesn't matter. We just amass it, amass it, amass it. You know, um, what he's talking about here is an inheritance that, that cannot be defiled. It can't be stained. It can't fade. It's going to last, unlike the treasures uh, that, that we're storing up. Look, 619, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where what you treasure is an indicator of your heart. If you treasure and cling to too much stuff, this side of glory, that says a lot about your walk with Christ. But if you enjoy it, grateful for it, share it, it could go, it's come, it could go, easy come, easy go. Maybe uh, allow someone else to join in and enjoy that as well. If those are the ways we're dealing with it, God says, great, you can have it. But if you grab it and cling to it and this is it and we got to get, there's rust and moth and all the rest of the illustrations indicating that treasures go away. But Peter's trying to make sure these guys that are under persecution, scattered around the world, these strangers and pilgrims, hey guys, we not only have a living hope now, we have a great inheritance and nobody can mess with it. It's preserved. God's got it. Now, What's interesting to me is the concept of salvation from a standpoint of, of verb tense. I put it, uh, well, yeah, no, let me wait on that thought. Let me just finish this one about being kept. What, what's being kept? It's being guarded or reserved, the perfect tense there, meaning there was an action. It was completed at the time, a specific time in the past, and the re results still reverberate. The, uh, the time Christ spent on the, on the cross, his, his act of offering himself was at a specific point in place in time, but the impact of that just keeps reverberating. When, when you find yourself in a difficult situation, you're spending great time with the Lord, mur, 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 I'm trying to find words this morning, finding um, a great ability to... to over and over and over again, uh, enjoy and, and uh, 
feel uh, embracing the impacts of the cross, what happens is that's the, that's the reverberation. It happened one time, but it, it continues to reverberate in the heart of the believer. Uh, our inheritance is like that. It happened one time, but the results are permanent. When he says it's shielded, there's a different po uh, point of view here. It's the present passive tense, meaning again, there's continuous action, but it's being done on our behalf. The continuous action of God that ensures our inheritance. Our inheritance, what is our inheritance? Uh, I, I typed that up on your notes and I want to read it as a Barclay quote, just on uh, chapter two for a second. It says, what then is this wonderful inheritance which the reborn Christian possesses? Well, there may be secondary answers to that question, but there is only one primary answer, and that's the inheritance of the Christian. The inheritance of the Christian is God himself. The psalmist says, the Lord is my chosen portion. I have a godly heritage, not my house, not, 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 not my 401k, not what car I drive, not who my kids are or where they went to college, but the Lord is my chosen portion. I have a godly heritage. Psalm 16, God is his portion forever. The Lord, out of uh, Psalm 73, the, the Lord said the prophet, is my portion, therefore I will hope in him. So what if heaven was everything, but Jesus wasn't there? We got new bodies. All of the people that we love that have come to Christ would be there. We had meaningful work. We could eat anything we want, we wouldn't bother our bodies. We uh, got to do things and travel and be places and explore the universe. Is that enough? If it is, you're probably not born again. Because our portion, that the bullseye of our inheritance is none of that stuff. The bullseye of our inheritance is Jesus Christ himself. And if we don't long to see him and be with him and learn of him and have him in a, you know, a real relationship with our eyes and our hearts. If, if that is not what heaven means to us, if heaven means chocolate only, you know, the kids, what are you looking for in heaven? Chocolate, you eat all the chocolate you want. I love chocolate, I want some of that. But if, if chocolate's what you're looking for, you know, go somewhere else. Our inheritance is him. And, and where is that inheritance located? It's located in heaven. We call it heaven. And what do you know about heaven? I did a series, what, a few years ago. I can't remember how far back. I don't know. We had like eight, eight 10, 12, 14 lessons or something on heaven. Um, if, if I were to ask you, what do you know about heaven? You're going to say, well, Jesus is there. Good. That's a good first answer. So what else? Do we float around in clouds and strum harps? Do we have a endless worship service that in my mind would become boring at some point? No. What do you know about heaven? So I want to give you a little, a little a blessing gift. I highly recommend Randy Alcorn's book called Heaven. I don't have mine now. I give them away all the time and I don't know who's got my last uh, version of it, but I'll have to buy another one. It's a big, thick book, and when you look at it, you go, oh, I can't read that whole thing. Don't read the whole thing. Cherry pick it. Just go chapter to chapter looking at the things that you're interested in. It's a marvelous work, and not everything that Randy says I buy. But I'm telling you, when I got through that book the first time, it changed my perspective about heaven. I never once again used the word boring in my heart about heaven because he is very clear in there about all the things that are go going to be a part of our treasures in heaven. 
So when, when uh, Peter gives us this, this teaching here, he's saying heaven is our permanent residence. Go to John 14, John chapter 14. The morning after, uh, or excuse me, the morning, uh, the, the uh, time after he's told all his disciples that he's uh, going away and so on and so forth. They're very sad. They're very upset. He, he wants to comfort them after the Last Supper. And in chapter 14, he starts off, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. And here comes the part about our treasures in heaven. He says, um, in my Father's house, which is obviously heaven, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And you st if you stop there and you go, all right, good. Turkey, dressing, mashed potatoes, and a lot of chocolate, and I'm good. No, he goes on. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back. And I'm going to take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. I mean, that's heaven. So when, when Peter's saying, hey, we have, a, we have a position in our being born again, we have a living hope that anchors us now, and we have an inheritance, he's talking about heaven. Um, some have tried to figure out, so, so when is the time he's going to do this? When is he coming back for his kids? When, when is it going to be finished? I can't tell you how many times in the last few weeks since Israel and, and uh, Hamas have been at it, people have asked me, Sherry, is this, are we in the last days? Is this it? Is this the done? I say, well, the, the last checkoff that we had on the, on the um, uh, coming, the Lord's returning calendar was checked off in uh, 48 when Israel got a land. There's nothing left in the Bible to, to be done before the Lord could return. But he's very clear, both in, in Matthew and in and Acts, and I gave you both verses for that, that he's not telling us when. It, people this weekend said, well, it couldn't get any worse. Before World War II, people thought, you know, after World War I, people thought, oh, that's it. It can't get any worse. He's got to return. World War II happened. Mr. Hitler happened. Okay, then, oh my gosh, he's got to come now. We're what, I don't know, 60 years or 70 years or 80 years or I don't know, 100 years past that. Uh, he still hasn't returned. Yes, I agree. I can't humanly see a perspective that allows it to get much worse, but I'm not God. Don't spend your time trying to figure that out. Just know that your inheritance is there. It's, it's secure. Peter's using those, those, uh, those strong words to say it can't be stained, it can't be taken away, it's there. It's, it can't be defiled, it can't be destroyed, it can't fade. It's coming. When? I don't know. Uh, Jesus made a point to say that, you know, even the angels don't know. He's not letting anybody know. Um, we, don't, we don't know, and driving ourselves crazy going to Ezekiel 36 or Ezekiel 38 and figuring out who Gog and Magog are and the army from the north. And yeah, I get it. There's a nasty army to the north. But there's been nasty armies to the north before now. My point being that we should focus on what we do know. What we do know about our current situation, our living hope, and what we do know about our spiritual inheritance. The latter part of this chapter in 1 Peter, verses 6 through 12, 
he kind of he kind of pauses and it's like he says in light of our salvation in light of our being born again in light of the living hope in the coming inheritance there are some things we ought to remember and in verses six and seven it has to do with the reality that christians do suffer all kinds of trials when we see someone so suffering sometimes we go to ourselves say to ourselves gee i wonder what she did to cause that she didn't do anything likely not it is in the list of things you ought to review when something bad happens to you is there some sin in your life and should you repent and should you get rid of it yeah maybe but there's like seven other things that might might be the cause of that of that trial you and i need to not be surprised when it happens you know i i've told you before about the day my my garage door open wouldn't wouldn't open you know a little clinker would grab it and so i'm out why now i'm out in the front front of my house crying out to god why now why this thing today why not today do you schedule garage doors not opening you know i mean i i made such fun of myself after that because it was so stupid when when something happens when the doctor says oh that looks bad or you know there's a loss or there's financially something happens uh you know uh, the refrigerator doesn't work anymore why why now do you have it scheduled refrigerator do not work on the thing we need to understand is christians do suffer and the word he's using here for trials, it's interesting to me. It was not the word that he would have used for persecution. Now remember the world that he's in. Nero hates the Christians, right? Rome is burnt and he blames it all on the Christians. And, and right at the time Peter's writing this letter is the very early stages of all of the terrible persecution that's going to go on to the Christians. So the Christians reading this letter would have probably expected Peter to use that word. Yeah, we are. Oh, the government's on us. It's terrible. They're after us. These, you know, Christians are being treated this way, that way, that way. That's not the, the word that he uses. He uses a more everyday kind of word, a word that might mean uh, temptation or, or tr personal trial or a testing. Have you had your faith tested lately? Got yourself in a situation, got two choices. One of them's a real good godly one and one of them's not so goodly, but it would be a lot easier to choose. That's, that's the kind of word that's being, that's being used here. And, and that particular word for trial is the same word that he uses in chapter four of 1 Peter. Look, look at uh, over the page, chapter four, verse 10. he says each uh, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others faithfully administrating God's grace in its various forms the idea of various forms at, at, at its root by the way that's the same word uh, that we're looking at in chapter 1 the reason that's interesting to me is both places at its root that word means to have a variety of colors you know kind of like uh, what was it not Heidi, who was it that had, I'm really going back, into the 60s, the Disney movie, and she had those colored uh, pieces of glass hanging in there, and, oh, come on. Not, Holly, Holly, huh? what's her name? Uh, yeah, yeah, her. Pollyanna. Pollyanna, that was it, thank you. Who remembered Pollyanna? All right. Well, she had little pieces of crystal, you know, and she turned them in the light, and they got various colors. That's what this word, this word is for trials. And he uses it over 
excuse me, uses it over here for the grace of God too. Almost like you could turn this, this, a lot of different ways to have trials. Oh, but a lot of different ways to have grace. As, as, as if there was a matching uh, variety of colors that were, or a variety of, of trials, a variety of the way grace can be applied. Um, we need to see trials as precious, not to be dismissed, not God get me out of this, but God get me through this in a way that I'm better off than I was when I went in. Show me what I should learn from this. Help me to rise to the occasion by using the spiritual power that you have for me to get through this, to address this issue, not get me out of it. So Christians do suffer. That's something we've got to remember. Second thing is, in verse number 8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and, joyous, and glorious joy. Um, the Lord might be unseen, but he's not unknown. And when we, when, when we have those moments where it's almost as if our eyes could see him, we respond in an inexpressible joy. So has there ever been, and I know there has been, think about moments in your life where it was just an inexpressible joy, probably the birth of your child or children. It was an inexpressible, you couldn't, how do you get the words? When they, when, when they lay that little, little darling in your arms. It's just inexpressible. Or um, any number of other situations. My point being is that Peter's saying, though we don't see the Lord, um, we believe in Him and we respond to that rebirth, inexpressible joy. None of the other stuff that we use as, as um, temporary satisfiers compare to the indescribable joy of just knowing Him, knowing that He is a part of our lives. Third thing he says, Peter says, I want you to know that through all these trials, uh, you need to remember that, the receiving, that receiving the goal of our faith is salvation. Now we use salvation all, almost always in the past tense. I was saved back then. So in my case, it was September the 3rd, 1969, at about 9.30 at night. I got it. I got it. That's when I was saved. The account that was, that was made by, by Jesus on the cross was applied to my account at that moment. But that's not the only way that the Bible uses salvation. And I, and I put it in your notes. There is salvation that's accomplished in the past. Uh, Ephesians, like, let's look at that one. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. This is the one that is uh, being accomplished, or was accomplished, rather, in the past, and still has an indicator in our lives now. Ephesians 2, <laughs> verse 8 and following. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast. For we are God's workmanship, uh, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The, 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 pa the perfect tense is referring to the, for it is by grace you have been saved. Been saved. 
There's a point in place in the past when you, when your account was accredited, the blood of Jesus was applied to your account, and you were saved. But there is also a, a, a salvation that happens every single day. If you're in 1 Corinthians, or you're near it, let, let's go back a couple of books. Uh, let's go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and then we'll look at one in 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will keep you. You are being saved. That's the word that's being there. You, you are being kept. You, you are being saved. You are currently being saved. Well, I, I'm so, so glad from that because I, I don't want my life to not have uh, a daily uh, effect of his salvation. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 18. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His likeness. Present continuous tense. It's happening every single day if we'll allow it. And, and that, that's where the comparison is. We, we say to ourselves, what was I like, let's say, three years ago? How is my temper? How is my disposition? How is my spiritual inclination? How was I following Him? How was I worshiping Him? Where was the fruit of the Spirit of love and joy and peace and patience and long-suffering? Where, where was I there? Now look now, three years later, am I making any progress? Am I submitting to the, to the power of the Holy Spirit and, and finding growth? He says here in this passage, we're being transformed. We're being saved every single day, if we'll lean into it. And then there's another sense in which our salvation is, is coming. Look at Romans 5. It's not happened yet. Romans 5, and uh, we'll look at verses 8 and following. 5. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? I mean, I, let me go on. For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? There is a coming salvation as well. There's a moment in time when either at the rapture or at the second coming, when all of this stops and the, ne next, uh, the next life begins, and there is a saving that takes place uh, for that to occur. So salva salvation, from Peter's perspective, is everything. He wants them to get it, to remember that, the, the, that even throughout the trials, we're receiving the goal, the goal of our faith, and that means our salvation in various forms. The, the, the next thing he talks about is in verses 10 through 13. And he wants us now to, in light of our rebirth, to acknowledge that even the Old Testament prophets yearn to know when the future salvation would occur. And that's what we were just talking about a moment ago. They all wanted to know. But the answer is, nobody knows. We, we're to be prepared in, in our trials to wait. It's his call, not ours. So this, you know, the first part of this lesson is kind of makes really easy sense that God gives us in our salvation a living hope and a, an inheritance. The second half, the things that are, that are being listed for us to do or, or to feel or to accomplish or to remember, they're a little fuzzier for me. 
But when I thought about the lesson in terms of so what, it was so obvious to me that the, the primary so what is we must be born again. We just must. It's not enough to, to, to just go to church. It's not enough to say, you know, our parents were Christians. It's not enough to say, I don't know, I went to Christian school. Not, none of that counts for anything. We must be born again. And we all have relatives that are at varying stages of, of Christendom, and we need to make that clear to them. We must be born again. There's just no way around it. We can't lean on the faith of our fathers or, as I said in your notes, good deeds or, or, or for that matter, the expectation of some kind of last chance. There was a lot of discussion in his day and time, Peter's, about would God give everybody a, a last chance? And I've talked to some people that believe, yeah, when you die, there's one more chance. That is so unbiblical, it's not funny. When you die, the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So there is a clear-cut change from this life to eternity. And what assures eternity is our relationship to Jesus. Have we been born again? And I, and I would remind you, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 says, Today is the day of salvation. So, I mean, if you know someone that is hanging on to a good deeds kind of list, or, you know, I was born in this kind of a family, or I, you know, I always go to church, or any number of those other uh, lines, you, you need to start praying specifically for them. Specifically, by name, every day. Lord, that they would come to know you through a rebirth. And then, I, I want to I show something to those of us that, that, that have been born again. Go to Romans 1. In Romans chapter 1, um, the part about we must be born again, I, I would say this. There's one more little thing to that. We need to make sure that, that we're not ashamed of that, that we let it be known. Look at Romans 1, verse 16. This is another great verse to memorize, by the way. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'll look at my neighbor and tell him, I have been born again. I'm not ashamed to tell my family members at Thanksgiving or, or to have a little devotion. And in that little devotion, to make it clear what Jesus expects. I'm not ashamed. I, I, I can hold my head high. I'm having so much fun with that, that gift a friend of mine gave me about uh, praying for waitresses. So if you didn't hear that, the, that whatever, it happened again yesterday. When I go to a restaurant, order my food, they go back, it gets fixed, and they, they bring out my, my food. They're about ready to sit it down. I go, I, this is what I say. Hey, whatever her name is, Mary, um, I'm just about ready to thank God for our food here uh, and pray uh, in, in you know, happiness that we have it. Is there something we could pray for you personally? And then just wait. They're not going to holler at you. They're not going to throw the food at you. They're not going to kick you out of the restaurant. I'll tell you what's going to happen. The person's going to look at you and go, uh, yeah. Yeah, you can pray for me. And then she just said, yeah, you can pray for me in general. And I said, no, 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 something specific. Take a second. Think about it. Well, I have two small children. One's three and one's three months old. And I've just come back to work. I said, oh, there's a lot to pray there for. And we'll be praying for you. Thank you. 
Nobody's hollered at me. Nobody's thrown anything at me. Nobody's hit me yet. All of them have been glorious in their response. So not only do we need to be born again, we need to make sure that we're not ashamed that we've been born again. And then secondly, I would say this, that we got to treat every trial, every testing, every tempting, everything as an opportunity to lean into the Lord as opposed to pull back. When something bad happens, our tendency is always to recoil. Get as far as we can away from it. Spiritually, though, I think the answer is to lean in. All right, Lord, just, I got it. This is happening. I wouldn't have chose it, but you did. I need to lean in. I need to hear from you. I need your courage. I need your, your whatever. When Brianna was little <clears throat> and I would discipline her, I could always tell when I disciplined her right. When I didn't do it with anger and I didn't do it in frustration, but I had all my, my act together w when I was disciplining her. And here's how I knew it. Because at the end of the discipline, let's say she got a couple of swats with the little spoon. At the end of the couple of little swats on her cute little posterior there, hopefully she never listens to this tape. Anyway, after a couple of little whatevers, if she pulled away and was still angry, then it was probably my fault, because I was probably angry. But if I did my little thing and I did it properly and I did it right, and my attitude was right, she leaned in. She want, the place she wanted to be was in my lap. She wanted me to hold her. When stuff happens to us, we gotta lean in, not pull back. God is at work, but he's doing his thing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this lesson. Thank you for the truth that's coming out of Peter's mind. Help us to be those kinds of people that when the trials and tribulations of life come, and they do, that we lean into you, not recoil. Give us a little courage around the Thanksgiving and Christmas holidays that, to let it be known to our friends and relatives that we've been born again. Help us to do that, Father. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it wouldn't have been no fun without you today. 